This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 2nd, 2015, the year's best Gab Fest. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson, Slate Senior Editor and CBS News. Or you're not Slate Senior Editor. You're something at Slate. You're CBS News and Slate. Emily Bazelon. He writes about politics, uh, remember? Yes. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, John and Emily. Hello. Hey, David. We, because we're on vacation... And we can't do a show this week. We picked our favorite segments from 2014 and we stitched them together in a show. So we're going to have three segments. One is going to be about whether you should ever call the cops if you see a child alone in a playground. Also, we're going to have a segment about the rise of political prejudice or partyism. And we'll have a segment on the worst book published in 2014, Hillary Clinton's memoir. And we'll have an amazing chatter from John Dickerson, the year's best cocktail chatter. It was about Andrew Jackson. And a Slate Plus segment, of course, too, which is the interview I did last summer with Richard Rubin about his great book, The Last of the Doughboys, The Legacy of World War I for the United States. First up, we had a great fight in July about when, if ever, you should call the cops if you see a child alone on a playground. Emily's position was amazing. My anger was profound. Enjoy it. Deborah Harrell, a 46-year-old single mom in South Carolina, has been arrested for endangering the life of her nine-year-old daughter. Harrell works at McDonald's, and she had been taking her daughter to work with her. The daughter sat in the restaurant, played on the family laptop on the McDonald's Wi-Fi. The laptop was stolen from their house, and the child asked to go spend the day on a busy playground instead. Her mother gave her a cell phone, and it dropped her off. And after three days of this, another parent spoke to Harold's daughter, asked her where her mom was, or she said her mom was at work. This parent reported it to the cops. The cops arrested Harold, took her daughter into the foster care system. How much rage can we work on? Do we all, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yes. do we all agree? <laughs> do we all agree? <sighs> Emily, let's, you, you go. Just you start with the rage, and then it will infect us here. Well, I mean, there's just this is so upsetting on so many levels. You have all the obvious race and class problems where it's impossible to imagine this happening to a white affluent mom. The amazing. I don't actually I don't agree with that. 
I don't agree oh, with that. I do. I, I don't think they would have taken the kid. I don't think they would have taken the kid. They wouldn't have put a, that they, child into no, foster care. No, they wouldn't have arrested No way, if this is my kid, does this kid go into foster care. All right, we'll continue. None. Yeah. Maybe down at the police station sitting and waiting for you. Maybe. And then the idea of putting a kid into foster care whose mother is obviously concerned about her and trying to take care of her is its own kind of horror show. And then you have this problem of criminal charges and making it even harder for Deborah Harrell to keep her job, get a better job, etc. I have another rant about this, and it has to do with summer and the way in which the summer is this wondrous, precious time for middle class and upper middle class children whose parents can afford to send them to camp. And just a wasteland for a lot of poor kids who don't have easy access to good summer programs and are kind of bored and restless and left to their own devices. And this seems to me like it is exactly falling into that space. During the school year, this girl, I'm sure, goes to school like my kids. But in the summer, you know, my kids can be off at camp and this girl doesn't have that opportunity. And I just like that makes me so upset as the another subtext for the story. Right. And and then if you have a park, which might be one way to provide a place for kids who can't go to school to hang out, like you can't even hang out in the park. Right. Or at least not unsupervised. Do we think, though, that it's a good idea to leave your nine-year-old unsupervised in the park for the whole day? Because I don't. I will say I don't. It's not a great idea if you if you have choices. If you don't have yes. choices, it seems like a pretty – it doesn't seem like the worst place to leave right. somebody. Better than leaving them – Indoors, without yeah, or not around have other looked, people. Have we looked at the statute in, in in South Carolina about whether it would have been endangerment to leave her home alone all day? Well, the statute in South Carolina, like the statute everywhere, is very vague. It's yeah. about you know being reasonable, uh, providing reasonable supervision under the circumstances, which is always what these laws say. So, like if you leave, you know, I have definitely left my eleven-year-old home for some amount of time, and what the jokes about, well, how much, how far, long could that last for before you get in trouble? There's no answer to that question because it's all very discretionary from the point of view of the state. We don't really need to get to this because it's been made. The point has been made, but one reason why everyone's so outraged is, oh, what if the child had been abducted? And of course, we just have to point out, there are so few stranger abductions in this country, as you as you might as well say, none. There are not none, but there are just so few. One, someone calculated that if you leave a child alone in a car, the child would have to wait there for <laughs> 750,000 years before the child would be abducted by a stranger. So this is where it well, gets back to Well, it's so the- much more... Right. It's so much more dangerous to drive around with your kid in the car just based on the number of car accidents than it is to leave a child alone in the park. Doesn't this go back to Emily's original point about race and class, which is that it's not the thing itself for which the mother was arrested, but it was it was tip of the iceberg. So if the kid's being left alone in a park all day, then untold horrible other things are a part of her life, too. That that sign of you don't have discrete negligence that it's... Can we also say... What person called the police on oh, this kid? Oh, like, no, no, no. This is, on. oh, good. This is where we're going to have a fight. This is so awesome. My feeling this about is that awesome. person, whoever he or she is, was that you could ask with concern what's going on, and then maybe you try and help. How is calling the police helping oh, instead of totally like wrong. maybe seeing oh, if oh, there's some way Emily, you could help supervise this is or where there's some smug, other private resolution This is where your smug you self-righteousness offer. ends. Because <laughs> I, I wanted to pose this question to you guys. You are at a, Let's say you go to a playground. You go there in the morning with your child. You go there. You, you hang out. You see a kid playing 
alone. You go back. At lunchtime, you left something at the park. You go back, check. Oh, the kid is still there playing alone. There's not really – doesn't seem to be attached to any adults. You go back in the evening. The kid is still there playing alone. It is – would be bizarre – Bizarre in this world, not to ask yourself questions about this child. Yeah, well, bizarre not to to talk to the child. And bizarre when the child tells you her mom is at work or is vague about it, not to think like maybe I have a responsibility to do something. Well, there's a middle ground. Call the police, David. That's the the part that I'm arguing with. I am with you you up until that. You try to talk to the parent to see what's happening. You assume that the police are. You assume the police are. I assume in this society, maybe I'm wrong. The police are kind of the good guys. They're going to help sort it out, make sure the kids. Why do you assume that? I tell my children never to speak to the police if they can possibly avoid it. The police cause trouble. Oh, my, oh my God. God. That is the oh. most interesting thing I've ever learned no, about I'm you. I'm really completely serious about that. The police are – you treat the police with the utmost care and you try to keep them as far away from your life as you possibly can. That's so interesting, Emily. That is Wait. so interesting. That's how That's I feel about have have You lie to the police when the police <laughs> We have to have a show on that, at, on that entire – uh, subject. I do not think in a situation where you are worried about an unsupervised kid that calling the police is any kind of wise move unless you think there is evidence of oh. criminality oh and my danger. Gosh. If you think a kid is being abused, that you might a, call the Department of Children's Services. Of, I would of, never call the police the on a kid in this paranoia, situation. Anti, I would try to Anti-authority paranoia. Which paranoia. You're, you're, yeah, you're apparently – no, you're vindicated in this case. But the, the wrong that was done here was done by the cops. It wasn't done by the parent who called the cops. I totally disagree. I think this is exactly a situation of how we don't have enough just private trying to talk to people and work problems out in this society. And everybody goes straight to the red alert alarm system and to government authority instead of trying to just ask a simple question and talk to someone and find out what's going on. But what the kid says – sorry, John. The kid says my mom is at work. And smug five minutes ago, by the way? The kid says the mom's at work because it's just a convenient adjective that I keep. It's like lodged in a corner (laughs) of my brain. Whenever Emily is saying something, I I just say smug. It doesn't have anything to do with the content of what you said. The, the. Okay, good. The, the, uh, I now oh, you, you interview, you, you, oh, you've broken him. the circuit. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Couldn't they have gone up to the nine-year-old girl and said, so where, what's up with you? And she would have said, well, I have a cell phone. My mom's at work. That that would have been, in terms of going back to the community, the community standards here first. And as a parent, would you have said, you might have said, well, can you call your mom just to make sure it's okay or something? But you wouldn't have necessarily gone to the police. You would have had maybe a right. few it stages It takes a village. Before. This yeah, is no, the community Look, not, not taking not, care of itself. Emily, I'm not saying that there also, I want to know the race of I'm that person I'm not saying there isn't an alternative. I'm not saying that there wouldn't have been better actions. But let's say the person had seen the kid there for three straight days, never, you know, never seen a phone come out, never seen her call her mom. Never, you know, never seen her have a snack or. But the, we don't have any evidence the kid was complaining or crying no, or that anyone evidence. tried to no, speak to this mother about what was happening. As somebody who, who whose natural instincts would be like, I don't have the capacity to deal with this. I don't know this mother. I don't know where she works. And oh, gee, I think I'll call the police on her and, and trust them to figure it out. I, why would you ever do that? Because the police. You live the, in a city where the police sometimes make mistakes and do bad things. Of course, the police never, make like, mistakes and do bad things. But I certainly trust the police more than I 
trust like random human beings to try to sort out what is what's going on with a this kid and a make sure kid being. has a this safe. This is the girl's mom. Like this happened without any conversation with this girl's mother to find to judge what kind of decision making and judgment she had. What do they call? What, what do they call the mom? They call the mom, and the mom is like you know because she's she's working the fryer. Or she's like her you know she's serving customers. She cannot answer the phone that second. I mean, That's an interesting question, but it didn't happen in this case. We don't. There's no evidence about the mom. Know. She's absent you're, from you're, that decision. Your kind of reflexive assumption that the cops should not be involved in this seems to me totally off base. The problem is not that the cops are involved. The problem is that the law is the law is an ass in this case. The law is no. Is vague, the law is, and the law is out the, there to be the prosecutors and the cops have used it in the wrong way. Yeah, but the the I mean the reason I feel so strongly about this is in all the talks I've given in the last few years about bullying and all the communities I've been in, there is such a nostalgia. Don't tell an authority for a figure. Emily View which, is like, don't tell, if you're being bullied, do not tell an authority. Don't tell the police if you're being bullied. Well, do I do if think that attacked, talking to the police is a big problem and police. leads to a lot more suspensions and expulsions of kids. And there's a lot of evidence that that is, in fact, a big problem with reporting bullying to the police. What I was going to say is that, in part, I think because of that awareness, there's a lot of nostalgia among people for a world in which adults kept an eye out for other people's kids and were able to say, hey, you know, your kid was rude or, hey, who is watching your kid in the park? And it all just kind of happened within the community. It was not, you know, something that had to be involved, the police or the principal or the whoever, that we just had ways of talking about stuff and working it out. And this really deeply feels to me like an example well, of that. But Emily, well, I agree with you. And if it had been a playground, probably in your neighborhood, there would have been moms who knew, oh, that's that's Bazelon's kid. That's Bazelon's son. Of course, she's actually she's, no. That's but, not true. Well, but anyway, Bazelon's always off on TV. She doesn't have time no, to take care of the kids. It's okay. They can play in the playground. But but not like that. Yeah. So so the <laughs> prob- again, the problem is not the cops. The problem is that there isn't a, that community doesn't exist. So the mother did. The mother doesn't have that community. She did the, not the mother. The the person who reported the person who reported doesn't have that community. Doesn't know who this child is. Seeing this child. But see, again I think again, you have to reach out beyond do? your own community, David. I really do. I mean, this is. Yes, I don't mean to personalize this scenario. too much, but the park near my house, where my kids occasionally go by themselves, is not actually a place where anyone knows. It's big, and people come from all over the city. It's super diverse. People are, you know, adults are playing basketball, and kids are racing around. And I would have no expectation that someone would recognize my child there. But if I saw a kid who was like different from my kid in class and race doing something I thought was wrong, I would try to go talk to that kid or the parent. It would not occur to me in a million years that calling the New Haven police would be a wise move. Zero. And it's not because I don't I have nothing bad has ever happened to me from the New Haven police. But because you lie to them whenever they confront you. Well, but city police do not necessarily treat, you know, black families fairly. That That is a safe assumption to make in the world. I'm sorry, but it's true. John, do you want the last word on this? Uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think you all have uh, taken this as far as it can go at the moment. All right. Cass Sunstein and David Brooks have weighed in recently about a demoralizing new phenomenon in American life, which they call partyism. Racial prejudice, sexism, even homophobia are clearly on the wane, but our willingness to judge others for their political beliefs is rising, with half of Republicans and a third of Democrats saying they would be disappointed if a loved one married someone of the other political persuasion. That is up from basically no one who used to believe that a generation ago. We judge people with opposing political beliefs more harshly. We, we find reasons not to hire them when we look at their resumes. 
it is the last acceptable prejudice in American life. So, Emily, is partyism a real thing or is this just the kind of thing that David Brooks comes up with because it's very it appeals to his David Brooksianism? I think it's real. I thought the research supporting the David Brooks Cass Sunstein thesis was pretty compelling that if you change if you leave resumes qualitatively the same but you change people's party signals then like-minded affiliates of those parties are more likely to hire people and also the numbers of you know, are you? How would you feel if your kid was going to marry someone of the opposite party? Have gone? They were tiny. They were like four or five percent for both Democrats and Republicans in the 1960s, and now they're up in the 30s for Republicans and the 20s for Democrats. The 40s that, for Republicans and the 30s 40s. For, for Democrats. Yeah. Okay, I didn't even say it um, dramatically enough. I mean, that those are big shifts, and I think they reflect. And, and Brooks and Sunstein were arguing this the fact that people don't live in politically diverse communities as much as they used to. And I feel like this is true about me, about lots of the people I know. And when you don't know people as much personally, then it's easy to demonize them and think that they are some alien creature who you wouldn't want to see at your kid's wedding. When in fact, when then when you stop to think about it and unpack it, that is crazy. I mean, it's one thing to say, like, I might not like this person and I might think their ba- values are bad. But the notion that that tracks directly onto party affiliation is just wrong and kind of nutty. It is, although <laughs> it's so true. I mean, you shouldn't have to live next to somebody to be reminded that other people are human beings and they can see things differently, but largely people care about their neighbors and their families and want the same things out of life and care about meaning and love and and that there's a much bigger connection between humans, not all humans, of course, but humans then, like, just knowing whether there's an R or D before their, before their name. And yet, I mean, we see this in political debates all the time where you should be able to have a debate and not require that the person be your neighbor to give them the benefit of the doubt. And uh, Emily, I think you're, what you've described is, a perfectly, is perfectly correct. I'm just speaking yeah, like, yeah, in absolutely. general. You're speaking prescriptively, uh, yeah. normatively. How it's just nuts. And, and of course, the, the way in which the debates are held in public, either on cable or Twitter, makes it worse um, because it's all enjammed. And in both the televised medium and also online, nobody says... Here's a story that's really complex and both sides have a contribution to make and it's really kind of complicated. It's mostly like here's one side being totally venal and horrible and then here's the other side being totally venal and horrible. I also want to emphasize that I don't think it's simply that people don't live together, although that's I think the original problem. It is that all the condensing institutions of American life no longer have that mixing function they used to have. So the military has – because when you have an all-volunteer military, that forms a self-segregation. The military, which used to be compulsory service for much of American history or much of the 20th century, that is no longer true. So the military is essentially an all-conservative institution. Religious institutions have highly segregated themselves. Schools, which are probably the closest thing we have to an integrating institution in terms of politics because – They will draw from different parts of communities. But even there, because of the residential sorting, they're less and less like they were. And also certain segments of American society have opted out of public schools in a way that they didn't a generation ago. So that you have, you know, Christian subcultures or private school 
subcultures which don't use the public schools in the same way. And you know, sports I think is maybe the one of the That's only what I was the only say. only institution where this is not. But even even sports, there's high political affiliation with certain sports. So auto racing, the hunting sports, the those are very tend to be very conservative. You know, soccer is clearly a sport which is tilts very liberal. And you know, things like football are somewhere in between. But those bring, bring people together around sports, but it's hard to see that that carrying forward into other aspects of people's lives. I think you're shortchanging sports slightly, though. I mean, maybe this is just getting too personal, but I feel like when I think about the time I spend with people whose politics are probably really different from mine, it is all sports related. And part of why I'm not even really sure is that I'm having interactions with them in which you don't have to talk about how you feel about a, a political issue of the day. You're just getting to know them. And so it allows for the kinds of interactions among families, you know, when I think of my kids' teams that just sort of transcend politics, and that's a big relief. Can you guys think of any occasion on which you practiced partyism or partyism was practiced against you? Um, well, I know John Dickerson to, doesn't do this. No, well, no, last, it's, it, it, when you when you feel it being practiced on you, it's hard when you're a member of the media. I mean, it's practiced on you all the time as a member of the media because people there are many people who are conservative who are suspicious of the media because they think that the media is full of liberals. So which it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They have reason to right, 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 right. I guess my point is that they it's think it is, and then they draw the conclusion that you must be. And there's also, it's a difference, too, because if you are not a conservative, it does not necessarily mean you are a liberal. But there are many, many conservatives who I've talked to who think of anyone who is not a quite a conservative person as being way the hell over into hippie land. And I, I wonder, is that true also on the left, where they think there is no such thing, in part because they're, they're dwindling in number, but there's no such thing as the Rockefeller Republican, that you're, if you're a Republican, you're a Tea Party person. I'm, I know there are people like, who think that. There are huge groups of people who think that on the left, but I feel like maybe I come across it more because I spend more time with conservatives. One of the interesting studies, I think Ezra Klein wrote about this, is that in fact, the people who have political interests at all do tend to be extreme. So insofar as you are someone who's interested in politics, it is actually very likely that you are more conservative or more liberal. So Which that, seems not skewing a... for the country and problematic. And yet, when you think about it, it's perfectly logical. Because if you're going to invest in politics, right. it's because you have convictions and you care right. about it. Of course, you have a position that you've taken and feel strongly about and you're not really up for grabs much of the time. I mean, one of the weird things, which is that m much pointed out, is that party and ideology didn't used to be associated, that your political beliefs, your, your kind of your intrinsic conservativeness or liberalness and what party you belong to, those were not congruent during much of the 20th century in the way they have become. So you had very liberal Republicans and very conservative Democrats, and that, that allowed party to, to not be a marker for – not be a way to discriminate or a way to, to distinguish people. You, you'd have to find a different way to distinguish people. And the way that we have, we have also sorted and, and calcified and locked in that conservative and Republican are synonymous, liberal and Democrat are synonymous or connected is bad. Agreed. <laughs> Do you think this is a reversible phenomenon or is it, are we doomed to it? wondering that is whether you need some catastrophic event to reverse 
to shake yeah. everyone up and remind us of our common human spirit. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, like the Great Depression, I mean, also, or you know, the, oh, war. I yeah, mean, not right. that I'm wishing war upon us, but it does feel like short of that, we yeah. have more and more geographical, institutional schism, and less and less sense of coming together. Playing off of your point about you know the people who are engaged are the people who are the most ideological. There's this huge chunk, chunk, big chunk of the country who doesn't give a damn about politics, and they are a big group of people who are kind of bouncing around together and mingling together and, and not that, listening to our show right God bless them. right i know well <laughs> either that or their lives uh they finally know the one piece uh, that's been missing from their uh, uh eternal journey um that's a huge group of people and they're all doing just fine in terms of this um, they've got they've got all kinds of other prejudices, but normal prejudices and not the political one. I think that actually might be my personalism that I struggle with. I'm in, super interested in, but a little bit baffled by people who are truly, truly oblivious to politics, like people who n- don't watch TV, are not paying attention at all to current events. And yet I also see that that can be a very freeing, peaceful way to live. Well, I think there are plenty of people who pay attention to current events, like some events and not wars. Politics. Yeah. And, and you know, the oil spill down the road or the state the of the schools or yeah. the murder. But but when they look at politics and you like take a list of the 10 things you should care about where you're caring about it might lead to some either sense of engagement with the world around you or give you strength through your day or, or make, make you, you feel like it changes your life. Make personally. you feel like it changes your life. You'd put like politics at 10 because it's full of people who, you know, are just behaving Badly. You know who's such a person? You know who's such a person? Such a person is me. I have lost. It's weird. (laughs) I've lost that caring about politics. I'm very interested. I, I liked your characterization, John. I'm very interested in the events and the things that happen. But politics, qua politics, man. I never, if I never read another story about it, I wouldn't. I w- it would be too. Soon. But you know, there's a sense of urgency about what's at stake some of the time, even if the game of politics and the ball bouncing doesn't interest you. Maybe. Well, that's because the game, and this is a result of two things: one, the atomization of the media, in which we have like ten seconds, and it's all about the fight. There's a way in which policy. And all right, politics wrap up. Ten seconds. You <laughs> <laughs> raised an interesting question, but John's not allowed to talk about it. Uh, where, where you know, um, the the disconnect between politics and policy is wider than ever. That's for media reasons, and then also for structural, I mean, behavioral reasons, which is to say that the polit- they're not doing anything, you know. But when you actually get a piece of legislation that might change people's lives, then at least you can... F- you can trick yourself into thinking, well, all of this game playing is stupid and immature, but at the end of the day, it's going to affect people's lives. So let's try and get as best an understanding of it as we can so that we can perhaps shape the outcome or at least understand the outcome and not think it's just being plopped on our head. I want to end this segment with a story idea for you, John Dickerson. It was an idea I came up with yesterday and tried to get my dear wife to do, and she was uninterested. I hope she doesn't hasn't become interested in the 24 hours since. But I think it's a perfect Dickerson story, and it's exactly out of this in this vein, which is there is surely some place left in America where there is actual political heterodoxy, where Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives live together cheek by jowl. Yeah. They share community. They share schools. They are, you know, some are, they go to the same churches. They're involved in the same workplaces. Mm-hmm. It's like the last leper colony. Yeah, it would yeah. be no, amazing a- to find that place and just like recount it. Like what this is what it used to be like. Right. Here's what, a- here's what life was. Yeah. Right. It's such a great point because in states like Wisconsin, which is considered a purple state, you have 
deep ruby red sections and then deep blue sections. So it's purple if you mix it all together for the state, but there aren't a lot of like purple neighborhoods. And what creates the conditions of those purple neighborhoods and how do they work? That's a great idea. I shall go uh, searching and looking to find that and uh, tell Hannah she can do something else. (laughs) All right. Good. I'd like to read a little passage to us. We're listening. As I moved on to New Hampshire and then across the country, I found my footing and my voice. My spirits were lifted and my determination hardened by the many Americans I met along the way. I dedicated my victory in the Ohio primary to everyone across America who's ever been counted out but refused to be knocked out, and for everyone who has stumbled but stood right back up, and for everyone who works hard and never gives up. The stories of the people I met reaffirmed my faith in the unbounded promise of our country, but also drove home just how much we had to do to ensure that promise was shared by all. And although the campaign was long and exhausting and cost way too much money, in the end, the process succeeded in offering voters a real choice about the future of the country. So Hillary Clinton's <laughs> memoir of her time as Secretary of State, Hard Choices, dropped this week. It is 600 absolutely dreadful pages long. The book is a grueling slog around the world, interrupted by tedious speechifying, platitudes about American greatness. It is, in short, an accurate mimetic representation of what it actually is like to be Secretary of State. John Dickerson, you've got an early copy. You were the first person to review it, probably the first person actually to have read the entire book, counting the authors, because I can't imagine they managed to get through it. Mostly, I feel sorry for you, in the sense that I managed to get through only bits of it and then like picked it up again and tried to read bits again. What did you learn from this terrible book? You know, well, first, I'm, I was... And how did you manage to read it? Uh, it was so painful. I, I had, they were sending me PDFs of the pages because it had been Xeroxed. And so I not only had, I had to read it on a screen where you, oh, it was, anyway, it was hell. I, you know. Can I just take a moment here to complain? I had to read Glenn Greenwald's book when it was embargoed. And he sent me this pile of printed out pages from a Word document. Every single one was stamped classified and half the lines were incredibly faint. I had to hold them up to the light. It was like a can, can we hear John? Puzzle. Can we hear John talk about the Hillary book? Can we hear John talk no. about the Hillary book? So it was it was uh, it was a grueling slog because I kept thinking there's nothing here, there's nothing here, which only makes you look harder to see if there's something there and you're missing it. The book is as exactly as you describe it, David. It is safe. There is no abrasion that you can get from this book unless you hammer yourself in the head with it physically. Um, you know, that's what you would expect from somebody who is cautious and safe and careful as a politician and what you would expect if you were about to run for president. You would do nothing. This is not a book of somebody who has nothing to lose. Secretary Gates, Robert Gates, his book was the book of somebody with nothing to lose, and it's full of interesting inside and insight into the policymaking process and the way relationships make and lead to the most important decisions that affect our world. And what is so discouraging and frustrating about this book is every time it walked up to something that was interesting, that might give us some understanding and, and way to reflect on the crucial, complicated, and hard choices that are need to be made in our world, it then fled the scene, leaving only the kind of pablum and so it wasn't even informative. I'm not talking about leave out the gossip. Fine. You don't want to make, have a book that has a bunch of gossip. That's fine. But a book that gives you an accurate representation of the normal tensions and brutal back and forth that goes on in a high stakes moment. So that was what, to me, made it such a kind of waste of pages. Emily, did you learn even a single thing about Hillary Clinton from 
reading the book or reading what bits of the book you managed to read. Oh, I'm allergic to bits like this. I refuse to read them. It offends me, honestly, that people would take up all the time and energy that goes into creating a book and a book launch and then have absolutely nothing to offer. I just... I know, I understand she's running for president, she has to play it safe, but it just leaves me with this sort of deflated sense of um, disappointment that you can get away with such an act of book homicide. Do you think that the awfulness of this book could actually hurt her? Or it will just be forgotten? It will only hurt the publisher who is going to lose millions of dollars on it. Yeah, the publisher was, they were fools. And I assume she'll go and smile at a bunch of book readings. She was in Manhattan at the Union Square, Barnes and Noble. Tons of people were bringing their daughters to meet her. I mean, people often buy books as artifacts as opposed to things that have words between the covers. And that this will be that kind of book, I guess. And also, I think if you wanted a kind of, um, you know, a level of tour through the world that you would get from sort of the State Department website, which for some people, you know, that might be just totally sufficient, the kind of Reader's Digest tour of the world. It does indeed, it's an exhaustive tour of the world and some of the interesting things going on in it. I don't think there's a lot of insight, but it, if you're just not engaged in those kinds of issues and you have an interest in her, I think that you would be a perfectly fine book. And I think the, what, the, what comes across if you read it and, and even just... Is that Every person in a model United Nations in this country. Yeah, Great. This is the. But I think she spent eighty-seven days. You know, contiguous travel time added up to eighty-seven days. She was on the road all the time and grinding through and doing the hard work of diplomacy. And so, if she wants to run as a person who works very hard and is aware of the complexity of the world. And since most people basically don't want to go having adventurous wars and think the world is complicated, I think this doesn't hurt her portray herself as somebody who kind of can have the world put into her her hands as president and not go off and do anything too risky. So I did the uh, Time magazine, our former colleague Chris Wilson, in fact, did this great little political memoir title generator. Did you guys do this? I submitted, I put all our names in. So mine was Solemn Leadership by David Plotz. (laughs) <laughs> a Mission to Defend by Emily Bazelon and The Authority to Decide by John Dickerson. So the biggest news that has come out of this book, because there's literally no news in it, is the thing that Hillary Clinton said in an interview in, as part of the book launch where she was describing the period of just after leaving the White House. And she said to a TV interviewer that she and Bill Clinton were dead broke when they left the White House. A remark of colossal stupidity. Right, Emily? Yeah, because most people don't define dead broke as having a nice house in whatever county of New York they live in and having lots of resources and also so much capacity to make more money, which they've absolutely unleashed upon the world to their own advantage. You know, pleading poverty when you are rich, just it it never fails to come across as completely tone deaf. How could she make such a bad misstep? She's so such a careful person that that was very uncharacteristic. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, but how you feel about how much money you have is so relative. And the Clintons do live in a world of in which they're surrounded or constantly talking to people who have incredible gobs of money. So maybe they do feel poor compared to the people around them. But I mean, she just lost total sight of her audience. Yeah. So when she left the White House, she had an $8 million book deal, had a $3 million house in Washington and $2 million house in Chappaqua. So 
that's that's not that's a, poverty, John. Come on. Yeah. So uh, now, what is technically true is that she did have millions of dollars in legal fees, and you know they were sort of out of a job. But I mean, she was dead broke in the way that you would be perhaps dead broke if you had the winning Powerball ticket in your pocket. I mean, you may have bills to pay, but you have the Powerball ticket, which means you're set for life. So. So people say the Republican committee, you know, she's out of touch. She doesn't understand what regular people are going through. I don't, that's not a problem. Hillary Clinton can solve that problem in a campaign context because, A, she has worked and advocated for policies that affect people in their daily lives and can sort of get on the right side of that issue. So that's not the problem for her. I think where this could be a symptom of or where this, in fact, itself could be a problem for her is that it she was ducking a question about her speaking fees and how much money she'd made. And so if people see this as an act of kind of truth shading or embroidery or embellishment, that's kind of what hung her up before. You remember during the 2008 Democratic primaries, there was a big period where basically the question of her trustworthiness and truthfulness was basically the center issue. There was an entire debate fought on that question. And that was a problem for her. Her numbers, uh, people thought she was honest and trustworthy. About 80% of them thought that at the beginning of the 2008 campaign. After it proceeded for a while, that number got down to 39. It seems to me the only possible purpose of this book is as a kind of stall tactic. It's like a four corners that she she is trying to keep her non-campaign going as long as possible. This is one way to keep her non-campaign going. It's a, it, she creates news. There's a cycles around her book. There's the book tour where she's not running for president. And, it, and meanwhile, it freezes all the people who want to run. So, so Emily is, is basically that the best she can hope for out of this? Yeah, I was thinking as you, yeah, I was reading Amy Chozik's piece about her being at Barnes and Noble. Amy Chozik has been assigned to the Hillary Clinton beat. There was a whole kerfuffle over that was a wrong thing for the New York Times to do because it elevated Hillary or put her under a microscope too early. And yet there's this like excellent New York Times reporter hanging out at some stupid book signing. It just seems kind of genius as a stalling tactic. But it also makes me even feel more depleted by it. All right. So we're going to close this segment. We're going to play a little game that I played with my kid. You guys are going to have to endure it. So I'm going to read a, start to read a sentence and you guys are going to try to guess what comes next. I'm eternally grateful that I was born to loving and supportive parents in a country that offered me every possible opportunity to fulfill my dreams and rise above my circumstances. Pretty good. Every oh. op- opportunity and what else did it offer her? It offered me every opportunity and resource. Blessing, Emily. Come on. Oh, sorry. (laughs) I'm being Uh, too secular. I followed my heart to... The Yellow Brick Road. Uh, You guys are so much worse than my daughter. Arkansas. To Arkansas, yes. And it burst with love... When my daughter Chelsea was born. Yes. Nice. It ached with a... Pain and suffering of Americans losing all their money. The losses of my father and mother. Yes. That's right. John Dickerson is born to lead. I'll leave it there. We're going to stop there. (laughs) No, do one more. Do one more? Okay. One thing that has never been a hard choice for me is serving our country. It has been the... Privilege. Uh, Honor. Honor. It has been the... Great, yeah, it has been the greatest. It has been the greatest honor of my life. Yes, this just. Made... I started you off on that one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was good. Glad you didn't do any that were like about multilateral relations with our East Asian partners. You could probably. All right, Vola, Vola is signaling me. Don't do any others. I flip to the middle of the book. All right, whatever you do, do not read this book. 
It's terrible. Uh-huh. Don't buy it. Don't read it. So, chatter. What's your chatter? JD? 178 years ago on this very day, Andrew Jackson was the first U.S. president to uh, be targeted by an assassin. And since we were talking about the powers of the executive, here, Andrew Jackson, who killed a man, well, killed many people before he was elected president, but could easily have been um, charged with murder by in a duel before he was president. The other fellow's uh, pistol did not fire, which in the rules of dueling would have allowed for a redo, sort of. But Jackson said, screw that, shot him and killed him. And that was that. So when Richard Lawrence, an unemployed house painter from Britain, I believe, approached Jackson as he left a congressional funeral, he um, pulled a gun, but the gun misfired. Jackson, 67 years old at the time, clubbed Lawrence with his walking cane repeatedly. Now, Lawrence was, it turns out, delusional and believed that the U.S. government owed him a large sum of money and that Jackson was keeping that money from him. If Jackson were to release the funds, Lawrence believed, that would allow him to take his rightful place as, of course, King Richard III of England. While he was, uh, <laughs> while he was muddling through these delusions in his head and getting beaten about the head by Jackson's walking cane, Lawrence then pulled a second pistol, fired it, but it didn't work. And at that point, after having misfired twice and taking several blows to the head, he was sufficiently groggy that um, bystanders were able to subdue him. One of those bystanders, just so that you can make this particularly absurd, was Davy Crockett of Tennessee. <laughs> this is so the best story the, ever. The, uh, and so he was ultimately subdued, and uh, he lived out the rest of his life, as we all came to learn, as the King of England. He had lived the rest of his life in, a, in an insane asylum. There was no uh, Secret Service until 1901. But in the 1930s, researchers at the Smithsonian Institution test-fired both of Lawrence's Derringer pistols, both of them discharged normally on the first try. That's so great. You'll find links to what we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash GabFest. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash GabFest. There's all kinds of fun conversations on that page. If you want to email us, please do so at GabFest at slate.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or another podcast app that you love. Stitcher is popular. There are Android apps people really like. I don't know them because I don't use Android, but there are such things, and you should use one. In iTunes, you can search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store. You leave a comment and a rating while you're there. That really helps us. The comments and ratings tell iTunes that, hey, this is a podcast people should be listening to. Also, if you are not listening to Mike Pesca's fantastic new podcast, The Gist, our daily podcast on Slate, wow, you are missing out. You are missing out. It is so good. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our intern is Max Tanney. Executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll be with you next week. Thanks Quick. for listening. Oh, thanks for listening. That's a new one from you, Emily. Thank you. <laughs> well, you usually say it. It felt oh, like really? it was missing. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.